Has the winter season taken a toll on your tile, upholstery, carpet? Call Cyclone Cleaners, 570-726-6200. For all your carpet, upholstery, and ceramic tile cleaning needs, it's Cyclone Cleaners. Also offering odor treatment and soil and stain guard. Choose the only cleaning company that supplies the water to clean your home and disposes of it when they are finished. Call Cyclone Cleaners to schedule your cleaning today, 570-726-6200. This is the Read to Lead podcast, episode 499. Hi, Michael Hyatt, author of your best year ever, a five-step plan for achieving your most important goals. Make sure your year includes moments reserved for this. It's the Read to Lead podcast with my friend, Jeff Brown. Hello, and welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. My name is Jeff, and this is the podcast dedicated to your personal and professional growth, where I believe if you want to achieve true success in business and in life, that intentional and consistent reading is a must. For the second time in a month, we dive into a business parable. This one written by Gerald Leonard. He's author of A Symphony of Choices, How Mentorship Taught a Manager Decision-Making, Project Management, and Workplace Engagement and Saved a Concert Season. As a former horn player, I really appreciated the setting for this particular parable. I'll be asking Gerald to share about choosing your portfolio, selecting your projects, choosing your rules of engagement, and much, much more as we dive into this book with him. The Read to Lead podcast community online is growing and growing fast, and we would love it if you would consider becoming the latest member. It's free to try for two weeks. After that, just nine bucks a month. Go to jeffbrown.me to find out more. There you'll find a new business book summary each and every week, content I publish not available anywhere else, monthly guest expert trainings, monthly trainings from yours truly, There's a monthly challenge based on our theme for the month. This month's theme happens to be leadership, as well as the chance to be featured among all our members. That and more as part of a Read to Lead Plus membership. Again, to find out more, go to jeffbrown.me. Gerald J. Leonard is a leading figure who has revolutionized the way we approach maximizing our potential. His insights have been featured on platforms like NPR and Jack Canfield's show, among others. A professional bassist, Gerald offers a unique approach to accomplishing more productivity in the workplace. He's an international keynote bassist and culture change expert. His programs integrate music, productivity, workplace culture, and neuroscience. His new book is called A Symphony of Choices, How Mentorship Taught a Manager Decision-Making, Project Management, and Workplace Engagement and Saved a Concert Season. Well, Gerald, welcome to the Read to Lead podcast. I am very, very excited to have you here. This is the second business parable I've featured in the last month now. The last one, a book called The Vagrant by Dan Rockwell, co-written by John David Mann, but excited to talk about yours today and give you all the attention this time around. Excellent. Well, I appreciate it, Jeff, and I'm happy to be here. Your your story is intriguing to me uh, for many reasons, and and the way you incorporate music into what you do, specifically because I was a music education major in college. Okay, I played a little instrument called the French horn. Those those are difficult instruments to play for the amateur and playing in the symphonies. So my favorite memories is beginning to, at the encouragement of my then band director in middle school, playing in the pit orchestras in local community theater. Let's see the South Pacific and Fiorello and Brigadoon, Fiddler on the Roof. Uh, so, so that was my uh, my introduction into 
uh, all that world. And reading your book was just kind of bringing back some of those fond memories. So I had to share that with you. <laughs> excellent. Excellent. Well, you know, you've, you've, you've had quite a bit of experience based on what you just said there. <laughs> well, speaking of experience, let's talk about yours now. And I want sure. you to kind of open up with the, with the journey that you went through that led to writing this kind of book uh, in the first place. Excellent. Well, you know, I, I did my bachelor's and master's in music and um, studied at the Cincinnati Conservatory of Music mm. and um, eventually went up to New York and through the Manhattan School of Music. I worked with a guy named David Walters, who was the t- my teacher's teacher. He was a bassist. He, in fact, he was the principal bassist at the time with Toscanini with the NBC Orchestra, and he started teaching at Juilliard. And uh, I had the privilege of studying with him in the professional studies program, again, through Manhattan School of Music for one year after that. Played in New York as a professional and then I did some ministry work for about six mm-hmm. or seven years. Uh, I got married, had a couple of kids uh, and kept playing, you know, playing a lot of music while I was doing all of that as well. And uh, at a high level and decided I wanted to go back full time into music. But now with my, you know, the, the my new beliefs and, and just uh, things that I've kind of gone through and experienced, I didn't really want to do any clubs or anything like that. And I mm-hmm. was doing some local orchestra things. I decided that. That you know, supplement my income. I'd get into IT by getting into technology and doing both of those at the same time. And I already had my master's degree, so I wasn't interested in going back to school and getting another degree. <laughs> so I realized that in the IT field, and again, I got into IT when you could, if you could spell IT, you could get in. <laughs> <laughs> and so, honestly, being a musician, it was a lot like picking up an instrument mm. uh, because you know, music is very logical. And computers are very logical, so it's the same part of the brain. Long story short, after 25 years of playing music, playing shows, playing concerts, playing uh, benefit uh, shows and things like that, and recording and doing IT projects, and realizing that my skill set was project management mm. because I was, uh, you know, I just, I, I could wake up and see chaos and organize it just naturally. That was just a natural part of who I was. Mm. And so I pursued that part of the IT field and got all kinds of certifications and everything else. And as I was doing that, I was also starting to speak a lot about mm. technology, project management, and I would always share my background as a musician. These are things I learned and things I learned in the ministry and so on and so forth. And people would come up to me and go like, wow, you know, it's amazing that combination that you've kind of created. And so my first book that I wrote back in 2015 was called Culture is the Base. Mm. And so, you know, just like a company's culture is a feel, well, it's like playing bass. It's like hearing a great bass line. And it really ties into that vibe of, you know, when you hear great baseline, you understand the music, you understand the genre and so on. So that led me to getting a literary agent mm. and getting published by Business Expert Press when I published my second book, Workplace Jazz. And that was all about agile teams because now work is done in small groups and agile teams right. and music. What's What are some of the great agile teams? Trios, quartets, quintets. Mm-hmm. So by being in both worlds, I could see those those correlations. And then a symphony of choices came about because right before I wrote my first book, I also developed a course called Project Portfolio Management. And I had already, 
you know, studied and got my, what they call the PMP certification or the project management professional certification back in 2005. And mm-hmm. after 10 years of doing that, you now qualify to take the PMP certification, the PFMP certification, which is the portfolio certification. However, there are very few courses of study. And I had just helped uh, Center Medic- Medicaid Services develop two certification courses, working with some other consultants. So I use that same methodology, wrote my course. And re- in reality, a symphony of choices is Dr. Richardson teaching the concepts and the principles of my course, mm. the portfolio management course, but I wanted to make it digestible because, you know, it is a high level uh, course and and very sophisticated concepts around decision-making and portfolio management and so on. But at the end of the day, they're very common concepts. So I wanted to make them accessible. And one of the best books that I've ever read that did that was The Goal by Elliot Golrat. And he used the story model to teach the theory of constraints, which I also got certified in. And so I basically followed that framework of having a a great story around uh, the symphony, which is the world I knew about, teaching the mentoring material of portfolio management from a business perspective. And so it all kind of came together Mm. in in doing that. And I also work with, you know, in partner with a really good uh, fiction writer because I was – had written my first two books were nonfiction, very instructional type material. And so writing the story and bringing a character to life, I had a lot of those ideas, but working with someone who was an expert in that also was very beneficial. Mm. You heard Gerald mention Dr. Richardson. Dr. Richardson is the mentor to Jerry in this parable, in case you were wondering, well, who's Dr. Richardson? That's who Dr. Richardson is. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> well, you, you talked a little bit earlier about project management. You threw out terms like program management and portfolio management. I, I kind of know what a portfolio manager does in the, in the investment world. Uh, what, yeah. is a, what does a portfolio manager do in this context? Okay. Okay. Well, think about it. You know, a portfolio manager in the investment world, what does he do? He selects various stocks, mm-hmm. various mutual funds and put them all together. And he has an allocation, you know, uh, of, of different funds, some that are big stock funds, some that are mutual funds, some that are cash. So he diversifies the overall uh, groupings of investments so that he ends up with a balanced portfolio. So that if one sector doesn't do so well, the other sectors are doing better and it all kind of balances itself out. Take that concept and put it towards a business investing in its future. And so a business is going to invest in, let's say the business says, hey, right now we are a a US-based company, but we want to become an international company. Well, to do that, we're going to need, you know, better financial services. We're going to need uh, new products. We're going to need um, a well-trained workforce. We're going to need offices in other countries. We're going to need. So that gap between where they are right now and where they're trying to go becomes their portfolio. And the portfolio process is just like an investor invests in multiple funds to create a well-balanced portfolio, you want to make sure that the company is investing in a well-balanced portfolio because they have to transform their business into this new model while at the same time 
growing their business by either reducing expenses or growing revenue and keeping the lights on with what they already are doing. So there's three categories, right? Mm -hmm. Run the business, grow the business, transform the business. So think of those as your, your portfolio mix or the, your stocks, mutual funds and cash and bonds. And then you're picking projects that are in each of those categories that are going to help you that when that project is done, it's moved your company into this new model, mm. to this new framework. So that's really what portfolio management is about. And quite honestly, every company, every business, every agency in the world has a portfolio process, whether mm. it's a well-defined one, whether they understand it, whether they actually know what to do with it. Uh, it's just kind of like everyone has a savings, whether it's a little bit or a lot, everyone invests in something, whether they're investing in a car or a home or they're investing in mutual funds. It's, all of us have those things. It's do we actually understand what we have mm. and are we using it properly? I know you, you study neuroscience a bit, always fascinated by that subject. Describe how, and I'm probably going to botch this pronunciation, the corpus callosum helps to explain the, the concepts of how portfolio management integrates your business. Sure. Sure. The corpus callosum is the part of the brain that connects the right and left brain mm. together, right? The left brain is very analytical. The right brain is big vision. So in my mind, the corpus callosum in a business is that portfolio that says, hey, we have the right brain of the business says, here's our five-year vision, or here's our 10-year vision, or here's mm our goals and objectives. And it lays out the big picture and paints the stories, but it doesn't give any details. So the left part of the brain says, or, or, or the business says, okay, so now we have this vision and we need to connect all the dots to make sure that we can execute these various details so that we can make the vision a reality. Well, the corpus callosum is that part of our brains that says, okay, you got the right brain, left brain, well, for them to communicate and for us to understand how to take what we're seeing and figure out what actions we need to take, that's the goal of the corpus callosum is to is to do that that uh, translation. And that's really the role of portfolio management is to take the bigger picture and then translate it so that it can be in details. And it's basically sharing that information back and forth between each sides of the business or each sides of the brain, right and left brain. Like a great business parable, there is an implementation guide uh, at the end yes. of the book, which makes sure that as we read through the parable itself, you don't leave anything to chance. We know exactly how we need to take these concepts and put them into action, which I love. Uh, and lesson four among these eight or nine lessons is all about choosing your your strategy. What do we need to understand about the power, uh, Gerald, of, of strategy links and, and strategic alignment? So, so the whole idea there is, you know, once we understand what our big picture is and what our intent is, uh, we have to develop a strategy of how do we get there, right? And once we understand the strategy we're planning on using, then it goes down to the tactics of how do we implement the strategy. And so the goal is in this alignment is you also, you want to make sure that the day-to-day -day work of an organization, of the day-to-day -day work that Jerry Hall, who's the main character in the book, mm -hmm. is doing is aligned to the overall goal of the business. And that's going to happen by identifying what those strategic objectives are and then ensuring that the projects and activities that are being executed on, on a day-to-day -day basis that are tactical are in alignment with those strategic objectives that eventually will accomplish that larger goal. Mm. So, the, so the idea is that 
you know, it's not just about busy work. Being productive and being effective and what I call being productivity smart isn't about, okay, today I'm going to get up and I'm going to do all these things. But if it's not keeping the eye on the ball of here's the overall goal and it's these strategies that are going to help me get there, Mm. then I'm not going to be in alignment. So I'll be doing things in my day-to-day life that at the end of the day, it's like, I'm still not making progress. Well, the reason you're not making progress is your day-to-day activities are not in line with your overall strategic goals to help you accomplish your bigger audacious goal. Mm. And so the whole point of that is to create that alignment. Because if you think of a very large organization, you have the C-suite, they have this big picture, but then you have the the, the guy in the mailroom, or you have the, the lady who's a paralegal, or you have the person who's on the front line, you know, working on the car. Mm. If they don't understand that th- how their work ties into the company accomplishing this big goal, they feel like, well, I'm just kind of here doing my job. Mm-hmm. But if they understand that what you're doing is critical to us meeting our goals, and that can be measured, kind of cascaded, that's a good word for it, mm-hmm. cascaded up and down the line where it's all connected, then you get everyone engaged because they feel like I'm making a difference to the overall business. It's kind of like the bricklayer who says, mm-hmm. you know, are you building a brick or are you building a castle? He may just be laying bricks, but if he realizes that I'm building a cathedral, mm-hmm. then he's going to have a little bit more pride and 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 uh, fulfillment in his work on a day-to-day basis, because he knows at the end of the day, he's not just laying bricks, he's actually building a castle. Yes, you you mentioned getting everyone engaged. What is lesson five specifically designed to teach us about the rules of engagement? You know, the rules of engagement, it's a concept I learned from a lady named Judith Glazer. She passed away, I think, in December of 2019. She wrote the book, Conversational Intelligence. I read that book probably around 2016, 2015, looked her up, took a couple of programs, and then did a certification program with her in neuroscience. And it's the neuroscience of conversations. Mm. The idea of rules of engagement is based on the philosophy that communication and getting people engaged is more about the neural chemistry of how we all work more than just the verbal commands of, hey, we need to work together. Because if someone comes in and the team's not doing well and says, hey, guys, we're not doing well, things are not going the way they're supposed to be going, we got to do this, we got to do that. Well, you still haven't changed the neural chemistry if they are not on the same page and they're not engaged with you. Their brains are producing adrenaline and cortisol. Their brains are producing these chemicals that say, wait a minute, I don't trust you. (laughs) I don't like what I see. I'm not getting engaged. I'm skeptical of what you're doing. And so imagine everyone's brains producing that chemical and you come in saying, we got to do this. We got to make you haven't moved the ball at all. So the rules of engagement activity is when you do things like uh, and it's, it's an example I did with uh, one of my clients. We got everybody in the room and gave them sticky notes, post-it notes and had them write down five things, five or six things that they loved about a team that they used to be on. Mm. So while they're writing those things, they had to think about what was it about this team that I love? And as they're thinking about all these positive things, guess what their brains start doing? Mm. It starts releasing oxytocin, dopamine, mm. serotonin, and GABA, all these positive neurochemicals. And then when they start putting them up on the board to see what did everybody say, and they realize that 80% of what everybody's putting on the board is the same, mm. they start realizing that, okay, wow, we're much more alike than we are different then everybody's brain now is starting to produce these positive neurochemicals. Now, if I said, okay, guys, now that we see that we have much more in common, let's figure out how to work together really well. 
now they're going, okay, I'm leaning. Now that everybody's leaning forward where mm-hmm. if I try to do that conversation from the point of, let me, you know, pull out the whip and, you know, I got the character stick and right. I want to force everybody to do, you're working against the, the, the neurochemistry that everyone is secreting at that time. And it's going to be much harder than if you were to put them in a place where all these positive neurochemicals coming out and now they're pushing and they're, they're willing to, to go with you and to figure out how to solve these problems. And they're going to get engaged because they now see themselves as part of the solution and not part of the problem. That is so powerful. I love the way you describe that whole process. Very, very well said. Can you unpack what you mean when you refer to the portfolio efficiency frontier? <laughs> sure. You know, j- just like when you're uh, managing stocks, um, there's an optimal selection of stocks that are going to get you to where you're trying to go, right? Mm-hmm. Um, there's an optimal grouping of companies and their their stocks that by combining them together, you're spending X amount of dollars, you're reaching, let's say, 70 or 80% of the value that you're going to get from those stocks. And then after that point, even if you invest more money, you got a flat curve, mm-hmm. it flattens out. So in other words, instead of it being a, a trajectory where things are going up to this point at the tip where you got the most optimal portfolio, I'm using the least amount of money to get the greatest amount of value from this, this portfolio collection, any more money. And if the curve flattens out, I'm really not investing my money wisely anymore because that efficiency curve has been met. So I want to identify. And so there are portfolio tools that allow you when you're selecting these projects and based on how you categorize them and so on, where you can identify how much of an investment in the right set of projects will put me at that optimal portfolio curve. And in anything else that I invest in in, in various projects or whatever, if the curve isn't still going up, and it's starting to flatten out, I'm not getting any more value out of this portfolio and I'm actually beginning to waste my money. And so it's a way of saying, how do I optimally use the resources that I have to get the greatest amount of value before I start flattening out the curve and not receiving any more value from my my investment? Uh, Gerald, you mentioned communication a little bit earlier. Lesson seven delves into a communication strategy. I'd be curious to know how that strategy is impacted by company culture. It's it's impacted in a massive way. Mm. Uh, again, I, I'll go back to my first book, which a lot of the, those concepts around culture, I always uh, draw on the concepts in that book. And because in that book, I, I did a lot of research from uh, organizations like Harvard Business Review, Case Studies, the Wharton School, MIT. And I'm always, I always like to use peer-reviewed content. So I go to places like the National Archives or, mm-hmm. or the, um, the, the, the National Institute of Health, where I know that the research that they're producing and, and, and they're uh, uh, publishing has been peer-reviewed by other experts. Right. So I can trust it. Mm-hmm. And so what I found is that there are seven things that really identify culture and how communication fits into that is, you know, one of the things is, the first thing is you got to have a great vision to have a great culture. Mm. Then you have to have a set of great values, right? A great, great principles or values that the organization is going to live by. Mm. And then you create buy-in, but the way you create buy-in is through the vision and the values by telling stories, 
which is your communication part, right? Mm-hmm. And so if I'm, so if my stories are are around, you know, how great the company is going to do and the great things we're doing, and it's based on our values, and I can sh- share stories of, you know, things that have happened where we have leveraged those values to get to where we are, and 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 getting people who are on the bus with me mm-hmm. engaged in that process they're going to now buy in. And so that communication part becomes really important by to tell stories, to, to share content that will get people to buy into the vision. And, you know, you want to hire for that attitude and for people who are, are on the same page with you regarding the values, because then all the technical things that, that companies have to do can be learned. Right. But if you don't have the right, it's, it's kind of like Disney, Disney doesn't hire people who can, who they can train to be happy. They hire happy people, (laughs) right? They hire people who are just naturally happy. So, you know, when you go to Disney world or go see, you know, any kind of thing that deals with Disney, the people there are going to be naturally happy because that's how they hire them based on the culture. And so once you understand those principles of culture and you put them into play in your organization, then your communication strategy becomes much easier because one, you know what the goal is, you know, the values everyone's espousing to, and you understand that, you know, people buy into what they create. And Mm -hmm. so your stories have to, and content have to be immersed in that area. Happiness at Disney is table stakes, right? And (laughs) to get your foot in the door, you gotta be, you gotta be happy. Exactly. And the time we have left, uh, there's a couple of questions I want to ask you in just a moment, not related sure. to the book. But before I do that, what haven't I asked you about, if anything, uh, with regard to the book that you want to make sure we know or or walk away with? Well, here's the thing. A symphony of choices is really a team effort. And what I mean by that, it's all of my ideas and my content. But after writing the first two books, one of the biggest things I learned about bringing a book to life mm-hmm. is that and it's something I learned from Willie Jolly, who's a top your speaker and in NSA National Speakers Association and, mm-hmm. and in the Toastmasters world. And he would always say, if you're in the frame, you can't see the picture. Mm. So in other words, to see exactly what's going on, you need other people's input. And I reached out to a number of coaches from folks that I've met with, like through Jack Canfield, a gentleman named John Kramer, Janet Schwartzer, um, just a number of people and and my PR firm, Smith Publicity. Mm. And as I was writing this new book, I was constantly getting their feedback, getting them to look at the picture with me. Mm. And so they would give me suggestions. And at first, one of the things I heard about, especially business novels, is that they don't always sell so well. Because people get caught up in the story and they're like, well, where's the business lessons? Mm. And so at the end of each chapter, if you notice, there's the lesson summary of what did Dr. Richards teach? Right. And then at the end of the book, there's a whole chapter summarizing everything that he taught throughout the book. And then there's the implementation guide. And here's the thing about the implementation guide. The implementation guide is a, a guide or a work product that I created for a company that I genericized that I delivered for a major law firm. Mm. And so it is a real life, a a sample of a real work product that I use to transform a AmLaw 100 law firm from being a, just an ordinary law firm that's doing great work, but to one that was doing amazing work and getting tons of project work done and using the project portfolio process and and true project management and where everyone in the organization now was aligned Mm. to the big goal of 
how to execute projects and get them done. So that roadmap that's in the back, that implementation guide is a, uh, is a, a piece of um, content that's based on my work history that I actually used. And I just genericized it so that I could protect the names of anybody that was in there mm-hmm. uh, that, that work with me. But it was something that I created for them as a roadmap and plan that can be used in any organization to help you actually execute and implement the things that you learn from Dr. Richardson in the book. Mm. And so I really wanted the book to be a business book. So you could actually scan through the book, look at all those notes and get the gist of the content. Right. But to get the story and for the story to be embedded in your heart and for you to understand it, when you're reading the story and you're seeing how Jerry's being trained and, and having to implement all of these principles, that's when it comes to life. And you can now, you take that part of it and the meat of the content, and it gives you a, a very powerful process to follow. Mm, indeed, it does. Um, I don't want to put you in a box, but I want you to recommend some books for us. I'm going to go out on a limb and guess they may be project management related. Um, not necessarily. <laughs> um, I would say probably one of the best books. I would say that Dr. Uh, Elliot Golrad, The Goal, is, is an amazing book. And it teaches something called the theory of constraints. It sounds like a really technical detail. It's a really amazing process that's used for any organization. And um, once you understand that principle, you'll see everything either as a constraint or and and the fact that you need buffer and so on. The other one is, I I mentioned earlier, Judith Glazer's conversational intelligence. Uh, One of the things there she talks about is that one, words create worlds. So the words we use create the world that we see. Mm. So for instance, before I did my TEDx talk, six weeks before, I had a major bout with vertigo. Oh no! It wiped out my vestibular system. I lost the ability to walk. I was in bed for a week. And as a musician, I, I and doing the, if you look to the talk, you talk about the neuroscience of music. I, I re- remembered from the research I had done that playing music activates the brain to where it will rewire itself. So as soon as I could sit up, I started playing music. And that's why I wrote the song at the end called Vertigo. I actually recorded that. It's on iTunes. But long story short, the fact that I learned about the neuroscience of of music and that part of it, Mm -hmm. I was able to use that to help me recover and walk. And so it gave me, quote unquote, a disability of a vestibular imbalance. I don't call it a disability. I call it a constraint. Mm -hmm. Because if I call it a disability, I'm telling my subconscious and my non-conscious mind, you're disabled. So what is it going to do to me? It's going to start disabling me. But if I say it's a constraint, then, well, based on the theory of constraints, I can take a constraint, elevate it and take advantage of it and get things done faster, Mm -hmm. better without using as much energy. Those are two books I would definitely recommend. And a powerful story to boot. I I didn't. (laughs) I didn't count on getting that uh, as a bonus. Wow, what a, what, a, what a powerful story that is. Last question for you, sure. uh, Gerald, uh, with regard to personal knowledge management. Um, yeah. I, I teach a course called Note Making Mastery, where we learn to go through this four-pillared process of collect uh, information effectively, connect new ideas to existing ideas and organize them, crystallize or distill those ideas down to their essence and put your own stamp on them, and then ultimately create to do something with that information that's new right. uh, or has your stamp on it. With regard to your personal knowledge, any tips or tricks or suggestions you might share with us that, that you have found useful over the years? Sure. Uh, and I love what you just talked about there in your process. Mm-hmm. Now, again, being a musician since I was 10 years old, one of the things I learned that was most important was to pay for coaching and mentoring. 
Mm. Right. Because as a musician, you're constantly looking for a teacher who's better than you are, who can give you feedback so they can help you become better. Mm. And one of my coaches right now is a gentleman named Dr. Paul Shilley. He wrote a book called Photo Reading. Photo Reading teaches a principle of how to read through a book and leverage your conscious and your non-conscious mind. Mm. In other words, you scan, you allow yourself to scan the book in, and then you go through a process of, of letting the book incubate, activating the book where you process, allow it to process. You do a mind map of the things that you want to learn from it. So you're basically using the Buzan mind mapping model to kind of you know, collect the data that you want from the book, have a conversation with the author as you're going through the process. And I'm talking, and I'm just sharing it at a high level right now. But by doing that, it's allowed me to be able to assimilate or take in tons of new content, allow my non-conscious mind to work on it, and then identify what questions do I really want to get from this book to fulfill my greater purpose. So recently, I've been working on a process around sustainability uh, for my company and as a as a, another product or service and kind of leveraging my knowledge of the project portfolio management area as well. So in doing that, I took four books that are pretty hefty, um, uh, well-written books on the idea of sustainability and photo read them all together and then created a mind map of what I got from all four books that are going to fulfill my purpose which now gives me a few a whole mind map of content from all these different authors related to my purpose. So I wasn't just trying to just read the book word for word. I wanted to get the concepts related from each book into my purpose. And it's now allowing me to build a program around sustainability for my company and for other companies that's a little bit different than others might have because I was able to take what I've already learned, take mm-hmm. stuff from my background as far as my project portfolio, portfolio management skill set, and then take content from these other four books and synthesize it down to a new concept or a new process. And so, you know, I love reading. I, lo- I believe that as, as the, as your podcast, lead, you know, read to lead mm-hmm. that, that, that is uh, uh, so true. And one of the things that I learned from Dr. Shealy was the concept that transformational change uh, occurs because of transformational knowledge. Mm. And that we have to learn and understand new knowledge before we can transform our lives to a different level, because the level of thinking that got us to where we are right now will not get us to where we need to be. And we have to identify those books and content that's going to uh, help us get there. And that photo reading process is one way I use to synthesize content from various books to create new ideas and ways of thinking. I'm definitely going to check that out. I was not familiar with that uh, book, but that's right up my alley for (laughs) sure. Well, uh, Gerald's book again is called A Symphony of Choices, How Mentorship Taught a Manager Decision-Making, Project Management, and Workplace Engagement and Save the Concert Season. It's an awesome book. I think you should pick it up. It is available right now. Gerald, thank you so much for taking time to chat with me today. I really appreciate it. Jeff, you're welcome. Enjoy the conversation. I'm familiar with that first book Gerald recommended, The Goal. We've had several guests recommend that over the years, but not the other two. I'm especially interested in checking out that book he mentioned called Photo Reading. I'll put links to all those books and the other resources mentioned in the show notes page for this episode, which you, of course, can find at readtoleadpodcast.com slash 499 for episode 499. 
There you'll also find a link to my book, a link to my course, Note Making Mastery, and also a link to find out more about a Read to Lead Plus membership. One more time, that's readtoleadpodcast.com slash 499. In the coming weeks, I'm looking forward to introducing you to authors like Pam Marmon and her book, Speak Up or Stay Stuck, Ray Edwards with Jeff Goins and their book, Read This or Die, and Brian Evergreen, Autonomous Transformation, Creating a More Human Future in the Era of Artificial Intelligence. That's just some of what's on the way here on the Read to Lead podcast as we enter the 500s. Well, that's going to do it for this week. Look forward to seeing you hopefully next time. Until then, as always, remember, leaders read and readers lead. need parts? O'Reilly Auto Parts has parts. Need them fast? We've got fast. No matter what you need, we have thousands of professional parts people doing their part to make sure you have it. Product availability. Just one part that makes O'Reilly stand apart. The professional parts people. Oh, 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 O'Reilly.